Um, so let's dive right in now to the sermon. Um, we are continuing in our series called How to Bounce Back. How to Bounce Back. This has been an idea that's been on our hearts as a pastoral team since Easter or so. Um, we, we just have this visual in our mind and hearts of our, our people here at Hope Denver. We've fallen down and now we're getting back up. And not just us, but I think the world in general. Um, the pandemic seems to be nearing its end, praise God. And summer is coming, despite what it looks like today. I promise it's coming. Uh, and things are just looking up. We're, we're turning a corner, I feel like. We have hope for what's to come. And so we want to talk about that idea, this, this uh, bounce back, coming back from hard times. Um, so picture with me for a minute a bouncy ball. If you were here on Easter, my husband's got preached a sermon with a ball, and he illustrated this point. But a bouncy ball, it falls down, and then it comes back up. And it uses the hard surface that it hits to propel it back into new um, direction and momentum. Um, I think that falling down is something we can relate to, isn't it? Whether you've had um, an easy time in the pandemic, I don't know if anybody could say that, but whether it's been this season or others, we, we've all experienced that at some point where we fall and hit rock bottom in our lives, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally, professionally. We can relate to this idea. And sometimes it's easy when we, when we have that experience to just stay down. Because it seems impossible to get back up. There are certain things in life that you feel like you just can't come back from. And um, I, I don't know if you've experienced that before. I hope you haven't. But uh, the fact of the matter is that we all have dark days in life. We, like Pastor Kelsey said, we will have trouble in this life. And so that idea of falling down and not knowing how to get back up is what I want to talk about today. And I think that there's a perfect story in the Bible to illustrate this. And it, it, it's one of the, it, it's a tough story in the Bible, I think. It's one of the most devastating and heartbreaking stories, but it ultimately is encouraging and redemptive. Um, it's, it's very dramatic and juicy. There's a lot of drama there in this story. I was just, I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, so it's also one of the most unlikely of bounce-back stories in Scripture. Um, so we're just going to dive right in because I don't want to skip a single detail. This story has so much to it. So turn in your Bibles with me if you have them on your phone or a uh, physical Bible, or it's all going to be up on the screen too. But we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 11. And while we get there, let me just set the stage for you with the story. This is the story of King David and Bathsheba. And... Um, so, for you to understand just how crazy this story is, we have to understand something first. So, our story is going to pick up with King David. And if you don't know anything about him, he is one of Israel's most famous kings. He was a warrior king. Um, he fought many military exploits and gained fame across the nation of Israel because of his military exploits. And he had done this even before he was king. Um, his predecessor, Saul, was very jealous of David as a military leader because people used to follow David into town after his military exploits and they would chant, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And there would be praise and celebration. He was known as this great warrior. He's the one who killed Goliath in that famous Sunday school story. Have you heard of that, David and Goliath? He even killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands while rescuing a sheep from his mouth. Like, this is he was. He was great. He was a very fierce warrior. And part of his 
force that he led. It was made up of 37 men of Israel, and they were kind of the Navy SEALs of their day. They were exceptional in battle, exceptional in their valor and honor and loyalty. Um, and these men called themselves David's mighty men. At one point in some of their military exploits, David complained that he was thirsty, so three of these guys snuck across enemy lines. They probably didn't speak, they probably fought across enemy lines, and got David some water and brought it back to him. Like, this is how fierce these guys were. So I tell you all that to make you understand how weird it is that we find David here. He was a fighter. That's what he was known for. But this is where our story picks up. 2 Samuel 11:1 says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So it's already off to a bad start. David is shirking his duty. He's known for his fighting. His army, his country needs him. But he's decided to just stay back in Israel and not go do what he's supposed to do. So let's continue. It says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So things continue to take a turn here. David is staying home while his army is out fighting. He's napping and walking around. She discovered that she was pregnant. She sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. 
there. But I, I think there might be more to this story. If you, if you look a little closer at this, you see that Bathsheba appears to be a loyal and obedient woman. Her name means daughter of oath. That means that she was somebody who was obedient and loyal. Later in the story, when we see judgment from God on this whole situation, none of it is proclaimed on Bathsheba. God doesn't punish her. He doesn't uh, offer any condemnation to her. She's actually described as an innocent lamb, a youth in this situation. And we'll see that later in the story. Um, we also see that later on, she, she uh, expresses some deep feelings for, for her husband and, and loyalty there. So I think that maybe there was more to this than just adultery. I think that Bathsheba was misused here. Um, the Reverend Dr. Erin Williams in her Evangelical Press Association award-winning article titled A Tale of Two Grapes, what Tamar Bathsheba teaches about power, consent, and sexual violence, says this. First, in the Old Testament world, to be summoned by a king was no small thing. Failing to appear was a matter of life and death. She did not simply refuse to appear. Second, even according to Hebrew law, this likely would have been considered rape. The law made the distinction of rape or consent based on verbal resistance by the victim, and whether or not that resistance could be heard by witnesses. If a man raped a woman in a rural area where she could not be heard, he alone was guilty, according to Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27. As Sarah Bowler notes, in vindicating the victims, if Bathsheba cried out, no one would dare enter the king's chamber to stop him. In that sense, there was little difference between the man raping a woman in the country and the king raping a woman in his palace chambers. Bathsheba had no agency or say in what the king did to her. Now, I know that that's a long quote, and it's uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable idea. But it's important to me that we talk about this, because it's important to me to make us understand that in this story, there's somebody who is victimized. There's somebody who had something awful happen to her. Just, we're going to stay there right now for a minute. But it's also important that we don't gloss over this, because I think that sometimes we see these things in the Old Testament, these hard ideas, and we take it as acceptance from God. We, we take that because it's in the Bible, God is okay with it. And he is certainly not okay with this. God does not condone this kind of behavior. He was displeased with David's handling of Bathsheba, and he's still displeased when this kind of thing happens. And we can see his heart for this later on in Matthew 5, 27 um, and 28. Jesus talks about this. He says this. Jesus said, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone who even looks at a woman like that has committed adultery. Jesus doesn't put up with any of this. He's not going to tolerate any of this. And, and the word that he uses looks there, in, in the original Greek, the word is blepo. Blepo, that's such a fun word to say, isn't it? It's one of my favorite words in Greek, but I think it's fun to say. But it means, it doesn't just mean to look, it means to almost perceive. It means when you look at something, you see it physically, but it has spiritual implications. You internalize it, almost. So Jesus is saying that when you even look at a woman like that, it has spiritual implications and it's very serious. God doesn't condone this kind of behavior. But it happened, anyway. And it, it derails Bathsheba's life. 
the story gets even worse. Even worse. Let's keep going. It says in 2 Samuel 11, 6 through 9, uh, after David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child, David says this. He says, Then David sent word to Joab. He's the commander out with the armies. Send Uriah to Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, Go on home and relax. David even said to get to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So you see what's happening there. David is trying to cover up what he did. He's trying to send Uriah home. So it looks like the baby is his. But Uriah doesn't go home. Why not? He didn't go home. Well, the Bible says, Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, Uriah slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Uriah on the front lines for the letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines for the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall, where he knew the army's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed, along with several other Israelite soldiers. Oof, this gets really bad. So Uriah refuses to go home, and I actually skipped over what he said, but what he tells David, the reason he wouldn't go home is because the armies of the Lord are too much out. How could he go enjoy his home? He would never do such a thing. What an honorable guy Uriah was. And David, the opposite. He sends Uriah back to Joab with a letter. Uriah had to carry the letter to Joab that said, put me on the front lines, where Uriah is killed. So now David, it's gone from bad to worse to worse. He shirked his duty, he misused a woman, then he had her husband killed. This is awful stuff. And this is, <laughs> this is in the Bible, this is what happened. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent, her, sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So Bathsheba is heartbroken. David tries to do right by her and marries her. But it doesn't make things right. The Bible says God was displeased. So something we need to note. God is gracious and kind and loving and merciful. But he always has been and always will be displeased when evil occurs. He isn't passive about these things. He doesn't stand idly by. And perhaps you don't like to hear that. You don't like to hear about punishment or wrath or judgment. But God allows consequences to occur from our evil actions. He does. I'm a mom of three, and I allow consequences to occur. I've been struggling this week with my youngest with some behavior things. And he always apologizes after he gets in trouble. And my response is always the same. I forgive you, but you still have to have consequences. Because he doesn't learn otherwise. And forgiveness is offered, it's freely given always, but there's going to be consequences to learn. And God is the same. It wouldn't be loving of God to allow Bathsheba and Uriah to be misused and to go unvenished. And it wouldn't be loving of God to allow David to just think that he can act like this. 
that's what your prophet is. He would speak to a prophet, and the prophet would go and tell people what God said. And this is how they heard from God. So, this prophet Nathan, um, he, he seems to have a good relationship with David and his family. He comes up at other points in their family saga. But at this point, he goes to David to bring down the hammer. And he comes into David and he tells him this story about a man who had just one single sheep and he loved the sheep dearly. And he cared for it and he fed it at his own, in his own home and it was his beloved pet. And this other man came who had a thousand sheep and he took the one man's sheep and killed it. And David is furious at this story. He says, who would do such a thing? They deserve to die. Who would take this man's one treasure? And Nathan said, you're that guy. You do that. You took this one man's wife and you have everything you could ever hope for in this palace. This is not what God wants and he's displeased with you. And this is David's response. The Bible says, then David confessed to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes. But the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. And so it comes to pass, the child of David and Bathsheba dies. Things are at their absolute worst here. There's so much destruction and death and hurt. If there ever was rock bottom, this is it. This is as bad as it can get. Killing. When I read this story, I'm reminded of just how messy life is. Even the richest and most blessed among us endure devastation. And I think we can relate to the feelings of desolation here, can't we? Perhaps we can relate to different elements of this story. Maybe you see yourself in David. Maybe you jerked your responsibilities, harmed a friend, made poor relationship choices. Maybe your actions have derailed the lives of others. Maybe you're so overcome by regret and shame, and you can't help but live in this spiraling cycle of bad choices. David was there. So was even here. But David started his bounce back story by doing one thing, and that's repenting. This is key, and Pastor Laura talked about this last week, and it made me so happy, because I was already praying about this, um, this part of my message, but if you're feeling stuck because of something you have done, wrong choices you have made, you will never get past them if you don't repent. You just won't. Repent simply means to turn away from what you've done, to admit wrongdoing, to ask for forgiveness, and then to stop doing that thing with the help of God. It's, it's that simple. And we see David repent earlier in, in the verse we just read when he said, I have sinned against the Lord. He admitted wrongdoing. But later, in another part of the Bible, the book of Psalms, which David wrote a lot of, um, we see the specific psalm he wrote when Nathan came to him. It's known at the beginning of Psalm 51. It says, For the director of music, the psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this was his response. This is how he repented. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Repentance is a, a thing we don't talk about very often. I think we're okay with admitting we're wrong in our culture. And we're not 
we don't do well with this, but God specializes in this. This is how it works in his kingdom. We will always mess up. We will always do wrong. Our sin is ever before us, just like it says in this chapter of Psalms. And God knows that. He sees it too. But when we bring it before him and we admit that we're wrong and we need his grace and forgiveness, it's immediately given. Unconditionally, no questions asked because of what Jesus did on the cross. Repentance always leads us closer to God. It always gives us more of his grace. It will never run out. If you find yourself in this cycle of poor choices, if you need to bounce back from your own mistakes, you can do that with the help of God. It is possible. Grace is for you. Just ask for it. Just repent. David repented from some of the worst sins we can imagine. And God forgave him. We need to do it too. Maybe in this story you're like Bathsheba, harmed by others. Life hasn't turned out like you planned. You tried to do everything right, but it didn't go that way. You've been robbed of dignity or hope or a good name. You have memories that haunt you, and you feel broken and overlooked. I want you to know that God doesn't ignore your heartache. It is not a small thing to him. He hates that you experienced that. He hated it for Bathsheba, and he hates it for you. It isn't in his plan for his children to be misused. You see, God loved Bathsheba. He cared for her, and he dignified her. He didn't allow her to be defined by the mess of this story. And, and here's how we know that. <coughs> he addresses her in a specific way. You see, Bathsheba has the great honor of being listed in the lineage of Christ. In Matthew 1, there's a big, long list of who Jesus' ancestors were. And this is very dry, boring reading, but there's some important gems in here. Because in this, this lineage of Christ, there's only a few women. Handful of women listed, his, his women ancestors. And Bathsheba is one of them. She's in there. She's listed as one of the ancestors of Jesus because she was. One of, uh, Jesus was descended from one of the sons of David and Bathsheba. But the way that Bathsheba is listed is important. She's not listed as Bathsheba, she is listed as the mother of Solomon, who was the wife of Uriah. You see, God calls her by the name that she had before all this mess happened. He calls her by a name that she chose, that she was dignified in. He gives her honor and grace here. He doesn't say that she the illicit wife of David who became part of the palace because of all this mess. He calls her the wife of Uriah, which marks what happens to her, and it dignifies her in the story. And God does the same to you. Part of your story includes something that robbed you of honor and grace and dignity. If it's robbed you of hope, God sees that and he cares about that, but he doesn't call you like that. He calls you loved. He calls you by somebody who has grace. And see, when, when she's listed in the lineage of Christ, her son's name is there too which is Solomon, and we're going to talk about him in a minute, but that name means loved of God. That was Bathsheba's legacy. She was loved of God, glorified, or dignified, and honored by God. God avenged her dishonor, and he elevated her to a position that was 
So we see here that God blesses them with another son. And they have more after this as well. So God blesses them with another son. They call him Solomon or Jedediah, being beloved of the Lord. And the last verse is God is displeased with David. Here we see that he offers forgiveness and restoration, and he's restored what they lost.
wants something to give. And if God doesn't help you, nobody can. <laughs>